The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So this morning is week number two in our series entitled For His Glory. And we're focusing on understanding the primacy, the importance, the supreme priority that has been placed upon the glory of God. The study of the glory of God is extremely relevant to anyone who seeks a better perspective, who desires to deeply know God, anyone who wants to know if their heart is right with God, and anybody who desires to move forward in Christian maturity. Now, this last week, I pulled all four of those pieces out and explained each of them with detail. So we began our study by focusing on rightful glory from Isaiah chapter number six. And the point of the entire message was to show that God alone is worthy of glory. All the glory goes back to him. And in that particular scene, it depicted God seated like a king on a throne. And his throne is high and it is exalted. And hovering around him are angelic beings that are continually declaring the glory of God and the holiness of God. It's from that particular throne room scene that I gave three very specific truths about the glory of God. So this is a quick recap of last week. And those three truths are number one, God's glory is never diminished by circumstances. And we saw that in that context, they had just had a beloved king who passed away, a guy by the name of King Uzziah. He reigned for 52 years, and he was a king that led well, and he loved well, and he led him into an area of prosperity. So when he passed away, the people were anxious, and they were worried about what the future was going to bring. And as sad as it might have been that a great king had vacated his earthly throne, we found out through Isaiah that the greatest king was still seated firmly upon his heavenly throne. In fact, we saw in that text that he was still seated. He was still exalted. Although, according to the text, Isaiah had died, verse number three said the whole earth is still full of God's glory. In other words, King Uzziah's death did not diminish the glory of God. The five chapters preceding it, whenever the people were in rebellion, did not diminish the glory of God. Later on in chapter 6, when it said that he was going to have to send his people into exile, 10 through 13, we find in that text it did not diminish the glory of God. We said last week that God's glory meter is constantly set on 100%. Nothing takes away from the glory of God. It's a helpful thing for us to remember because even in our darkest moments, God is still sovereignly seated. He is highly exalted. He is constantly praised. He is completely holy, and he is infinitely glorious. Isaiah's concept, his discovery, also helps us. Even if the outlook is bad, the uplook is always good. Second truth that we found is God's glory and holiness are continually declared. As the angelic beings are surrounding the throne and they are singing of his holiness and of his glory, we defined those two words last week. That is, holiness speaks of a separateness or a distinction from others. That is, God is separate from, he is different than, he is completely distinct from everyone and everything. He is in a classification of his own. When speaking of his glory, glory refers to the infinite beauty and the greatness of his many perfections. 
So when those angels are singing, the whole earth is full of his glory. What they're saying is everywhere you look, it is his infinite beauty and his many perfections on display. The third truth we found last week is God's glory reveals our true state before him. When Isaiah saw God, he could then accurately see himself. God's glory revealed his sin. And that's a really good thing because we found that Isaiah's conviction led to Isaiah's confession. And Isaiah's confession led to Isaiah's cleansing. And Isaiah's cleansing led to Isaiah's commissioning. It is after this point, he is now sent out as the mouthpiece of God to the people of God. So let's pull all those pieces together. All rightful glory is God's alone. And while he alone is worthy of all glory, here's what Isaiah 42.8 says. God will not give his glory to another. Why would he need to say that? Why would he have to say, I'm not sharing this glory with anyone? It's because his glory is constantly challenged. Others want what he has. That's where we pick up this morning. How has God's glory been challenged? Who is challenging God's glory? And specifically, are we guilty of wanting what God alone has? Now, I'm going to be sharing from multiple texts this morning, and each of those texts are listed in the top of your notes. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do today. I'm going to encourage you to look at those texts when you get home. Okay, because as we keep making these connections with every connection, if you're still in the last text, you're going to miss the next place this is going. So literally this last week has been probably over 30 hours prepping for this message. On Friday morning alone, I thought I had an hour left. Six hours later, I was still wrapping my mind around this. So if you walk away like, I think I got it, but I'm not sure. That's exactly how I am right now. So anyway, I'm glad I get to preach it four times. Maybe by the fourth one, I will really have this thing settled into my spirit. So anyway, this morning, you'll look at the top of your notes. You'll see that the title is Challenged Glory. And if you remember, I was going to talk about stolen glory, but I switched the title because no one can truly take God's glory from him. But many want what he has and challenge his authority to have it. Let's start with some prayer. Heavenly Father, we need you like crazy in this moment. If these pieces are going to connect together and the storyline makes sense. So God, today, would you give us incredible clarity of thought? Please help us that there's no distractions that would remove our minds from focused on what it is that you want to share. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week, we talked about how all rightful glory is directed to God alone. He deserves all glory, and he alone is the one who should receive all glory. But that doesn't mean that God's glory is not challenged. And to understand the concept, we have to look back and understand the ancient battle between good and evil. Now, that battle does not begin with humanity. It doesn't begin with creation. It doesn't even begin with time as we know it. The initial challenge to the glory of God took place in heaven by one of the most trusted angels of God. That angel has been referred to as Lucifer, a.k.a. Satan, the devil, our ancient foe. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about that initial challenge. 
In fact, the few texts that we have have often been uh, disputed within the church. There's a lot of controversy over these texts. But those four texts are Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Luke chapter 10, and Revelation chapter 12. It's all of the ones listed at the top of your notes. It's when these passages are seen together and we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture that the story of Satan or Lucifer begins to make sense. So let's begin with Isaiah 14. It addresses the king of Babylon, listen to this, by addressing the power behind the king of Babylon. Now, if that's a little confusing, one of the best examples that we would be more familiar with is in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. Whenever Peter or Jesus spoke to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Now he's talking to Peter and he's calling out Satan. Why is that? Because although it is Peter's lips that are moving, it is Satan's words that are on his lips. Basically what Jesus is saying is, Satan, I know that Peter's the one standing in front of me, but I know it is you standing behind Peter giving him these thoughts. And he goes to the one pulling the strings behind Peter and he says, Satan, get behind me. That's the same idea that we now find in the first two of these passages. So listen to the way that would connect. Isaiah 14, 12 and following. Here's what it says. How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? Now let's pause there for just a moment. If you have a King James Version, it would say this. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Now, why does the King James speak of Lucifer and this other passage speaks of star of the morning? Well, here's the connection between those two. The name Lucifer is a Latin word. It's not a Hebrew word. The King James relied heavily upon the Latin Vulgate within its translation. So here's what the word Lucifer means in Latin. It means morning star. Here's what the Hebrew word halil means, light bearer or morning star. So some translations wrote the meaning of the word. Other translations wrote the name that the word means. That's how you got the word Lucifer in your Bible. Now keep going with me in this. Isaiah 14 keeps going on to say, you have been cast down to the earth. You said in your heart, listen to all of these I wills. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So it describes the pride of the king of Babylon by referring to the source behind his pride, who is Lucifer. Lucifer was the one who wanted what God had. He wanted to sit where God sat. He wanted his throne to be above God's throne. He wanted to be like God himself. He challenged God. He wanted the glory of God, and God cast him down. Now, listen to the connection in Ezekiel 28. The passage now refers to the king of Tyre, by referring to the power behind the king of Tyre once again. Here's several verses starting in verse 13 and following. 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were blameless in your ways until unrighteousness was found in you. You were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Now, we know he's not just talking about the king of Tyre because of the phrases here. It says, this individual was in Eden, the garden of God. This individual is called the anointed cherub. That is not a designation that could be for an earthly person. At one point, this individual was blameless until his heart was lifted up and until God cast him down. That story is very similar to what Isaiah was talking about. Now, believing that those two passages are referring to Lucifer or Satan is further reinforced by what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. He told his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Listen to this imagery now, Revelation 12, 8. It says the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads away the whole world. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So it's with these fragments when they're put together and we allow scripture to interpret scripture that we can begin to see a basic storyline of Lucifer also referred to as Satan. That is, Satan is a created being called a cherub. That is a singular form of the plural cherubim. He was close to God. He's described as beautiful and blameless and wise and resplendent in color. He's called the shining one. Being a created being close to God called the shining one. He was created also to reflect the glory of God. But somewhere along the way, his heart became proud because of his beauty. His wisdom was corrupted. He began to see himself not as one reflecting the glory of his creator, but as one worthy of glory himself. This is huge. Here's the three thoughts that are being expressed in his story. He wanted what God had. He wanted independence from his creator. He wanted to be God himself. Those are the three concepts of his story. He wanted what God had. He wanted independence from his creator. He wanted to be God himself. Pride led to his downfall. He challenged God and he wanted the glory of God for himself. And God cast him from heaven and he left with a third of the angels with him. Now, hold that story, and let's answer this. How does any of that impact you and I today? Here's your connection. When Satan was unsuccessful at dethroning God in heaven, he now focused his attack on the image of God here on earth. Humanity is created in the image of God. 
Humanity alone is the part of God's creation that God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So you and I are the image bearers of God, also created to reflect the glory of our creator back to him. So here's where the story picks up in Genesis, chapter 1 through 3. God creates humanity in his image for his glory that we might know him intimately, and that we might serve him faithfully. That's the story of our creation. We're placed in a perfect environment so that we could thrive. We had everything that was necessary for our lives to flourish. We had relationship and partnership and purpose and love and value and identity and beauty. But just like the angels who were created before us, God put limitations on our freedom. So God told Adam and Eve in the garden, you can eat of any of the trees of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the limitation that was placed upon Adam and Eve. So when Satan makes his appearance in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, in the form of a serpent, here's what he says to Eve. Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Did you see what he just did? He calls God's goodness into question by exaggerating the limitations that God placed upon them. Has God told you you couldn't eat of any of this? That's wrong of God. Man, that's a shame. Look at all of this that's around. Did God tell you you couldn't have that? And the next thing we find is Eve trying to defend God and set the record straight. She comes back out and she says, it's not that bad. In fact, he told us that we could eat of any of these trees except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said that the day we eat of that, we will surely die. And here's what Satan does. He moves from calling God's goodness into question to calling God a liar is the next transition. Here's what he says. He comes out and he says, you surely will not die. And listen to how he baits the hook. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Okay, notice the subtlety. He wants the image bearers of God to reject their creator the same as he did. He even tells Eve, God lied to you. You're not going to die. In fact, he knows that in the day you eat of that tree, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. In fact, God knows when you know that, you will be like him. He's leading Eve down the exact same three deceptive thoughts that led to his fall. Do you remember how he fell? He wanted what God had. He wanted independence from his creator. And he wanted to be God himself. The exact same three thoughts are now expressed in the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. Here's what Satan is saying. You can have what God has. You can have personal glory for yourself. You can have knowledge just like God. You can be independent of God because rebellion does not end in death, 
but rather it leads you to freedom. You can be like God yourself. He's holding you back from reaching your full potential. He knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to know what he knows and you're going to be just like him. You don't have to live in God's shadow anymore. You can be your own person. So what happens? They bought the same lie. They too rebelled against God. And their eyes were opened. Satan did not lie. Their eyes were opened. But now their eyes are open to a world of evil and sin and rebellion and death and shame. Prior to this moment, get this, prior to this moment, all they had ever seen and experienced was good That's it. And Satan even told him. He's like, you will know what he knows and you'll be able to discern the difference between good and evil. Why would they even want to know what evil looked like? I mean, that's a crazy thought, but he baited the hook with, you can be like God. He is overly restrictive of you. He's holding you back from your full potential. They knew that they would be able to see the difference between good and evil. And here's what else happened on that day. Did they gain independence? Kind of. They gained separation from God. Here's another one. They wanted what God had. They wanted that glory for themselves. They wanted that independence from God. They wanted to be God themselves. Now, bring that whole story. We got two stories now. We got the fall of Lucifer from heaven... And we also have the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. Let's bring both of those stories to you and I today. Somebody might say, Paul, Adam and Eve fell for that old trick, but I wouldn't. Yeah, you would. Yes, you. We all did. In fact, we all do day after day after day. And that's what Romans 1 clarified for us. That's what Romans 1 brings us back to. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, it tells us that we've all been guilty of doing exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. There's been a time in every one of our lives, multiple times, thousands of times, where we wanted what God had, glory for ourselves. We thought that our way was best and we wanted independence from our creator and we tried to rule the throne of our own hearts and to be our own gods. So listen to what Romans 1 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Now, how did God make it evident to them? How does God help us to know who he is? The next verses will tell us. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. What did the angel say in Isaiah 6? The whole earth is full of his glory. Everywhere you look, you are seeing his infinite beauty and his many perfections on display. All you got to do is open your eyes and it's screaming to the fact there is a creator and there is a God and he is glorious. All of it is all around you. So what happened after that? 
Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Here's what he's saying. Even though they could clearly see the invisible attributes of God in creation, we didn't honor God for who he is as God. And we didn't thank God for what he gave us, life and purpose and an opportunity to know him. Our minds have been darkened and we thought we were wise, but in our wisdom, it was actually foolishness. So what do we do with these darkened minds? He tells us in the next verse. This is powerful. Verse 23, we exchanged the glory. We exchanged the glory. We exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. And then he gives us three other categories and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now get this. This is how crazy our darkened minds can be. We exchanged the glory of God for an image made in his glory. Which would you rather have? The person you love in front of you or a picture of the person you love in front of you? Which would you rather have? A hundred dollar bill in your hand or a picture of a hundred dollar bill in your hand? Which has more value? Here's what he's saying. He goes, in our darkened, deceived, foolish minds, we exchange the glory of God, God himself, for an image that was made in his glory. We gave up the substance for the shadow. We gave up him for something else. And he goes on in Romans 1 to say, in our foolish, deceived minds, we have exchanged the glory of God for an image he made. We worshiped the creature rather than the creator. We didn't want to acknowledge God. We did not want to thank God. So in an act of splendid foolishness, we rejected the glorious one for objects that were made in his glory. But here's what a deceived and a depraved and a foolish mind will never understand. Any good we see in us, any beauty that we see in creation, any glory-worthy aspect of this world is only a temporary carrier of the greater glory of God. Another way of saying it would be, these things have no glory in themselves. They have no beauty apart from His beauty. They have no perfection apart from His design. They have no glory apart from His glory. So here's a, 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 an illustration. Maybe it sticks in your mind. It's like admiring someone you love in the mirror and then asking them to leave the room so that you can continue to admire their reflection in the mirror. When they leave, their reflection goes with them. Here's what humanity did. We admire his image in creation, but the creator needs to leave the room. When the creator leaves, 
His image and his glory goes with him. His reflection goes with him. There is no glory apart from his glory. Creation is full of his glory. It's not full of the tree's glory and the animal's glory and the person's glory and the rock's glory and the mountain's glory. It's full of his glory. So when we said, God, you're not welcome, he's basically saying, you've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made in the form of corruptible man. So what did God do with that rebellion? Romans 1, 24 and 25 tell us, God gave them over. Probably some of the scariest words you'll read in your Bible. He gave them over. He gave them over. To what? To the lust of their hearts. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Here's what God did. He turned us over to exactly what our hearts craved. We wanted independence, and we got separation from him. We didn't want to live under his authority, so he let us see what life was like when we lived under our own authority. We thought that we could rule our own hearts only to find out we can't even trust ourselves. We chased after our glory and found that pursuit to be empty and unfulfilling. So now in brokenness and in discouragement and with problems of our own creation, we longingly look back to the garden to a time before death and pain and suffering and shame. And we look back there and say, I want that. But listen to this. We can't have that until we know how that was lost. And listen to this. That comes with him. If he's not there, that's not even an option. So that's literally where the story comes back to us. Everything fell apart when we wanted what God had personal glory. When we thought our way was best, independence from God's authority. And when we tried to rule the throne of our own heart and to be our own God. Now that sounds desperate. Can any of it be reversed? Yes. That's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel message is the good news that explains God's design and sin's intrusion and Christ's solution to human flourishing. Here's what the gospel tells us. Humanity was created for a relationship with God. We were created in the image of God as, as image bearers of the glory of God so that we could know God. That's why we've been created. Our sin, our rebellion separated us from God. We thought our way was right, and we found out fast our way was wrong. There was nothing we could do to make things right. The further and further we tried, the more and more problems that came with it. But Jesus did for us what we couldn't do. Lived a perfect life. Died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and rebellion rose again on the third day that we might have life and he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship, the opportunity to experience our created design for those who are willing to say, I was wrong and he was right. I've sinned, he was right by placing faith in Jesus Christ. If you have never experienced the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life, that's step number one in your life in order to experience a life that is flourishing. But even if you have been changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Satan uses 
the same three deceptive thoughts to keep you from fully embracing your created purpose. Remember, you were made in the image of God for the glory of God, to know God intimately, and to serve God faithfully. This is in your notes. Three foolish and ancient ideas will interfere with God's glory being fully reflected in us. Number one, I want what God has. Number two, I think my way is best. And number three, I want to rule my own life. Every time you and I entertain or pursue any of those three thoughts, we will exchange the glory of God for some lesser pursuit. In that moment, it rarely feels like rebellion and sin. Do you know what it feels like in that moment? It feels like freedom. It feels like independence. It feels like stepping into a deeper level of enlightenment. Somebody might even phrase those decisions at that moment by saying something like this. I'm doing this for me. I'm doing what makes me happy. I'm going to chase after my dreams. I'm going to live my life. I am going to fulfill my potential. And in that, we see the problem. We've once again reversed the order. We're still believing the same ancient lies. As Christians, we can still be deceived. We have to make this point extremely clear. God did not enter our story to glorify us. We entered God's story to glorify Him. That has to be in our minds. Our fulfillment is not found apart from Him. Our joy is not found apart from Him. Our purpose is not found apart from Him. Our identity is not found apart from Him. Our redemption, our hope, our future, our everything is connected with Him. We're made in His image and we're made for His glory. So where in your life today are you pursuing one or more of those deceptive thoughts? Where do you want personal glory for yourself? Where do you think your way is best and maybe God's is ancient and out of touch with reality? And where are you trying to rule your own life? In every one of those moments, we are challenging the authority of God and we are wanting what he has, glory for ourselves. Next week, we're going to see if a person comes to a full awareness of this and they say, I don't want that. I want to live every day of my life in a place where I'm reflecting the glory of God. That's what we get into this next week. How can we stay in that place? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word, the clarity of your word, the way the word brings together pieces of this, this story. And God, it gives us greater perspective as to what's going on right now. So many times we think that we're the first to come into this thought and that somehow we're unique and that others just don't understand. And the reality of it is, it's the same three thoughts that deceptively led to Lucifer's fall. Same three thoughts that deceptively led to the fall of humanity. Same three thoughts, according to Romans 1, that lead every single one of us 
to constantly exchange the glory of God for some lesser pursuit. So God, I pray that you would give us incredible clarity in this. Help us to see in our lives, where are we challenging your glory? Where are we challenging your authority? Where are you calling us to submit and just simply trust you? God, help us to see it clearly in Jesus' name. Amen.